This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So, we are in um, the book of Acts. We just started a new series last week. We're calling it Empowered because we can't do life on our own. We have to do life in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask somebody if you would just come and just remove the speaker here from the front. That would be, be great. Thank you. Um, so, we're talking about doing life in the power of the Spirit. Last week, we started this new series, and in chapter one of Acts, we were really talking there about the promise of the Holy Spirit. This week, we're looking at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So let's look today at Acts 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 of Acts chapter 2. So the Bible tells us there that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because... Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
One of the hardest things for us to do in life is to wait. And especially when we're kids, you know, I can remember at Christmas, my parents might let me open one or two gifts early, but there was always something big that I was looking forward to. And for that one, for the big gift, I would have to wait. Well, as the second chapter of Acts opens, the followers of Jesus are in a waiting mode and they are waiting for the gift it's the gift that we saw that Jesus had promised. And we saw last week in, in chapter 1 and in verses 4 and 5 that Luke tells us there that on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, by this time, Jesus had spent three years with his inner core of disciples. And then he had spent a period of almost six weeks preparing them, pouring into them, teaching them after his resurrection. He appeared to them many times. He had meals with them, and he, and he spent time teaching them and preparing them for what was to come. But before his ascension, Jesus says, here's the first thing I want you to do. Wait. I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. I don't want you to go out and try to do ministry. I don't want you to go out and try to do life until the gift of my spirit is poured out. Now that tells us something about the crucial nature of this gift to our lives, doesn't it? So what, what do we see here in, in Acts 2? The first thing, let's take a look at the setting more of, of what's happening here. What is, the, what is the setting? Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost is one of those words in our culture that has really become divorced from its original meaning. Because if you ask the average person on the street who doesn't know the Bible what the word Pentecost means, they're usually going to talk about a certain group of Christians called Pentecostals. But that group of Christians didn't begin until the 20th century. If you're going to understand really what, what Pentecost is all about, you have to go back to the first century. In fact, we even know, need to go back beyond, well beyond, back, uh, further back than the, the first century. Pentecost was a Jewish festival, and it occurred 50 days after Passover. That's where the word comes from. And so uh, it was one of three annual festivals or feasts where Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so it was associated partially with agriculture. They celebrated the coming in of the wheat crop. So the first sheaf of wheat would be brought in on Pentecost. But Pentecost for the Jewish people also had a very deeply uh, spiritual and, and biblical meaning. Pentecost was the time when they remembered what happened 50 days after the first Passover. So what happened on the first Passover? 
God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so 50 days later, what happened to the children of Israel on the first Pentecost? They came to Mount Sinai. And Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai. He ascended to the top of Mount Sinai and God gave Moses his law. And then Moses descended from the mountain and he came down from the mountain with what? With two tablets, stone tablets with the law of God written on these tablets. And so at the first Pentecost, what was God doing? He was giving his law. Now what's happening at this Pentecost? God is giving his spirit. At the first Pentecost, Moses ascended up to the top of Mount Sinai and then descended with the stone tablets, with the law of God written on these tablets. At this Pentecost, Jesus has ascended. He has gone up, and in a sense, on Pentecost, he's coming down in the power of the Holy Spirit, not with the law written on tablets of stone, but the Holy Spirit who writes the law of God on our hearts. And this is the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. Let's look at it. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their people, their God, and they shall be my people. You see, God's law is wonderful and it's good and righteous and holy. But in our own strength, do we have the power to obey God's law? Absolutely not. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to obey God's law. The Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts so that we can love it from our hearts and obey it from our hearts. What does the law tell us? We talked about it last week. It's about love, right? God's law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But we can't do that in our own power. It's God's spirit that writes that law on our hearts. It's God's spirit that gives us the power to love God and others from our hearts. Let's take a look at at verse 1 again. Luke tells us here that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, in a sense here, this is a point of information. They were physically together in the same room when this happened. But in the context of what we're going to see in Acts, Luke is foreshadowing something else. One of the primary themes that we're going to see again and again in the book of Acts is the unity of the early church. We're gonna see their love and their togetherness and, and their, 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 the, the fact that they're physically together in one room is also a foreshadowing of the, the spiritual unity and love that existed in the, the early church. You know, recently I was, I was in a, a place where historically there's a lot of animosity 
between people from different backgrounds and specifically a lot of animosity between Arabs and, and Jews. Um, but one of, the beautiful, one of the beautiful things that God is doing there among the followers of Jesus is that he is producing a love that just transcends these differences. This is a picture of some pastors in that place. And you can see in this picture, some are Jews and some are Arabs. And these guys really look like they love one another. And that's because they do. They love one another very deeply. These, these guys are all in the same theological training school, the same Bible school, studying God's word together, and they have a deep love for one another. It's a love that has shattered old barriers, and it's also a love that they, as pastors, are bringing to their congregations. And that love that exists between Jewish and Arab followers of Jesus is now kind of grabbing the attention of other people in that country. And other people are beginning to notice the love that just shatters these old barriers and they're, they're asking, what is this? What is this? That's what we're gonna see in Acts is that people see love of believers for one another. You know, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And what we're gonna see in Acts is that the, the unbelieving world sees the love that exists among followers of Jesus and they're asking the question, what is this? And may God see that in us. May people see that in us. May people see a, a love for one another that is so powerful, so compelling, that they'll thirst for that and it will grab their attention. That's the setting here. Let's take a look at the sound, the sound. Luke tells us about a, a sound in, in verse two. He says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. You know, when Melissa and I were um, in our first house, which was a little church parsonage in Eastern North Carolina, there was a tornado warning one night and, uh, and as the storm intensified, it was kind of one of those situations where you kind of knew we need to go into the interior bathroom here in, in this house. And uh, we could tell something abnormal was happening. And so we, we were kind of huddled together in this little bathroom and, and just this sound, sort of like a freight train, just sounded like it was going over the house. And there was a weird sort of thump which turned out to be the chimney of our house uh, becoming detached and toppling over on the roof, but we were fine. But the next day we could walk through the woods behind our house and we could just see a sheer path of destruction through those woods from that tornado. But this mighty rushing wind is not about destruction, it's about reconstruction. The Holy Spirit is about the reconstruction of human lives. It, it's, about, it's about healing human lives. It's about, it's about cleansing, renewing, 
refreshing, flourishing. This mighty rushing wind blows through our lives and it, and it, and it purges us of things that don't need to be there. And it begins to, 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 to reconstruct and to, to make us into the people that God has purposed for us to be in our character. And the fruit of, that Holy, of the Holy Spirit is, is love. It's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. So this mighty rushing wind comes into our lives and it begins to transform our character from the inside out. It's about reconstruction. You know, it's interesting, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for wind and spirit are the same. They, they go together. Wind and spirit. The spirit is like the wind of God, which is what Jesus is alluding to in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? Jesus says there to Nicodemus in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying here that we can't even be saved. We can't be born again. We can't be born of the Spirit unless the wind of the Spirit of God blows through our lives and enables us to believe because on our own, we would never do that. We're dead. Ephesians 2, 1 says we're dead in trespasses and sins. It's the Spirit of God that makes us alive and that opens our eyes, our, uh, removes the, the scales from our eyes spiritually and enables us to see who Jesus is and to turn to him in repentance and faith. And so we, we can't be saved unless the wind of God, the spirit of God blows through our lives. And listen, we can't do the Christian life unless the spirit is continually blowing through our lives. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And the tense there means continually, continually filled with the Spirit. Uh, continually refreshed and renewed as the wind of God blows through your life and fills you. We can't do it on our own. Let's look at verse 2 again here. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, just weeks before, Jesus has been in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was the days leading up to the cross as he was doing ministry there in Jerusalem that week. And whenever he would do ministry in Jerusalem, he would stay at the home of these dear friends, these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And on this particular night, Mary wanted to show an, ex an ex extraordinary act of, of sacrifice and love for Jesus. And we're told about it in John chapter 12 and verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment 
made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That sounds very much like this verse, doesn't it? Right? On that night, this fragrance filled the entire house where they were. It was a fragrance of love. And, and now, just weeks later, as the Holy Spirit comes, this, this wind of love, it says, was just filling the entire house, the entire room where they were sitting. This is a picture from a, a room that I was in just a, a few weeks ago overseas. And this is a house congregation. Actually, it's an apartment congregation. And you can see the, there's a young teenage boy and he's, he's holding up the cup and holding a, a loaf of bread. And we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper together. And what you can't see from this picture is that there is just a joyful singing that is taking place. Just the most joyful singing. Um, and this occurred at the end of an, of an evening where we had, had, uh, had sat around maybe 15 adults or so, um, probably uh, seven to 10 kids running around. <laughs> you can see a couple of them there in the picture. Um, but we had sat around and we had, we had just studied God's word together. They're, they're, they're going through, in their congregation, they're going through a, a book of the Bible. And so it was the most beautiful thing. Now I can tell you by this point in my trip, I, physically, <laughs> I was dragging. In fact, that night as we walked into this apartment, I can just, I can remember being so physically tired, just dragging. Two hours later when I walked out, I was floating. Why? Because of the wind of God that was blowing through that room. As we, as we sat around with predominantly that night, people who spoke predominantly three different languages, and as we just dug into the text of Scripture together, and we helped one another, and, and different ones would help with the translation as we were walking through it. But just the, the power of God's Spirit working through the Word as we studied it together, and then as we prayed together, and we sung together, and we broke bread together, and we fellowshiped with one another afterwards, and shared stories, and heard testimonies of what God is doing in, in lives. It was just one of the most powerful times of my life, I'll never forget it. It's the wind of God. And that's what happens throughout the world. It's what happens whenever believers get together just with open hearts and open Bibles. And we study the word together. And we help one another. And we teach one another. And we sh we 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 fellowship with one another and we share life uh, together and we break bread together. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the wind of God moving in the hearts of people who love the Lord and who love one another. Now let's look at verse three. It says here that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, there's a great irony in verse 3, and that is the fact that these tongues 
are dividing. It's sort of like flames that are coming to rest on each one of them, the way that Luke pictures it here. The, the tongues are, divi- are dividing, but the purpose of these tongues, as we're going to see in a moment, is that they bring unity. They are coming to divide and rest on each one, but the purpose of that is to bring people together so that they can understand one message that is being shared. Now Luke here uses the image of fire, which has a very rich biblical history. So God appears to Moses in a what? A burning bush. God leads the children of Israel by a pillar of fire. And then on the first Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, look at how that is described in Exodus 19:18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And now as the Holy Spirit comes, he is coming in fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist. In Luke 3:16, it says that John said, "I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." So we see the setting, we see the sound, third, the speaking, the speaking. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the word here for tongues is just simply languages. That's all it means. It's just languages. Um, And remember the setting here. You've got pilgrims from all over the world. Jewish pilgrims have, have descended on Jerusalem on this special day. And they, they have different languages. Their, their native tongues are different. What does this tell us about God's timing? God said, I want you to wait for the coming of this gift. He had them wait for the perfect day, the perfect time. It was a day when you had these people from all over the world are in Jerusalem. And what does God desire? God desires for them to hear the good news about Jesus in a language that they can understand and then do what? Go back to their own countries and spread the good news. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? His timing is always perfect. And we have to remember that in our own lives because it is difficult sometimes to wait. I mean, maybe you're in a waiting mode in your life today for, some, for something. Maybe you're, you're waiting for something. You're praying for something. Um, and sometimes it's hard to wait. I want to tell you, God's timing is always perfect. He loves you. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And so God's timing here to, to, to perform this miracle on this day was just, just so, so perfect. Verses 5 and 6. Now, there were dwelling, and dwelling here means staying. They were staying there for uh, a, a couple of days as pilgrims. 
in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the miracle here was not one of hearing. Okay, it was not that the hearers were suddenly able to understand languages that they didn't typically understand. It was that the speakers were able to suddenly speak languages that they typically could not understand, let alone speak. And this raises a a couple of different questions that we need to, to think about. So, first of all, just as a point of clarification, the other part in the New Testament that deals with um, the issue of speaking in other languages is in 1 Corinthians. Now, when it comes to the, uh, the languages that are spoken in 1 Corinthians, different scholars that I, I greatly admire and respect uh, have some different views about exactly what is happening with the tongues in 1 Corinthians. Because it seems there that possibly some people are speaking in unknown languages, like a language of angels, which some of them uh, used in their prayer lives. Um, And then some were using uh, publicly in in worship services, but Paul says in that case, it should never be done without interpretation. But scholars have, you know, they have some different views about what exactly is happening with the tongues in 1 Corinthians. There's no debate about what's happening here in Acts. Okay, these are known languages that are being spoken. Okay, they are the languages of these people that are gathered there as pilgrims in Jerusalem. And these followers of Jesus are suddenly being given the miraculous gift of being able to speak the good news of Jesus in the language of these people. So the people can understand. And that raises another issue that we need to think about when we, as, we're, as we're walking through Acts together. So when we read about miracles like this in Acts, what should we expect God to continue to do today? And what are the things that God was doing then, miracles that God did then for a specific point and a specific purpose for that particular time, and how do we distinguish between uh, the two, between things that we should continue to expect today and things that God did then for a specific purpose then? How do we, how do we make that call? You know, one of the best books that I've read on this is a little book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. I read this my first semester in seminary, and I'm so thankful for it. But when they talk about interpreting acts and making these distinctions, Fee and Stewart say this, and I think it's very, very helpful, okay? Here it is. The crucial question here is whether narratives that describe what happened in the early church also function as norms intended to delineate what should or must happen 
in the ongoing church? Are there instances from Acts of which one may appropriately say we must do this, or should one merely say we may do this? And here's the rule, okay, very important. Unless scripture explicitly tells us we must do something, what is only described does not function in a normative or obligatory way. Unless it can be demonstrated on other grounds that the author intended it to function that way. So for example, we made a point earlier about unity, that Luke is making a point about unity in the church, that we are to love one another and the family of God. Well, is that something that should continue to take place in the ongoing church that we should continue to practice? Obviously, yes, but why? Because scripture explicitly commands us to do that, okay? It commands us that that is to be a part of our ongoing life as believers. There is no part um, in Acts or elsewhere in the Bible where we are commanded uh, to, to, be, that, to you know, be able to speak in other languages that we don't understand. And so can God still do that? Absolutely, God can do whatever he wants to do. But it means that it's not something that we should um, that we should should expect. Okay, so when it comes, for instance, to communicating the gospel cross culturally, the first and sometimes the biggest challenge for those who want to spread the good news overseas is what learning language. All right. So this doesn't mean that we should cancel all of our language learning schools among our workers that are sent over overseas. No, God here is making a specific point. And that's the thing that we'll miss. If we don't understand this principle, we miss this. Because God is doing this miracle on this day to make a point, and we see it, we're gonna see it throughout Acts, whenever this, is, this happens. God is making the point in enabling these believers to speak in other languages and spread the gospel. What point is God making? God is making the point that the good news of Jesus is for everybody. It is for every tribe, it is for every tongue. That's the point of this miracle that is, is happening here in Jerusalem on this day. Hey, look at verses seven and eight. It says, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? You know, this week I was, I was reading just devotionally in the early chapters of Genesis, and I came to Genesis 11, where we read about the Tower of Babel, where God confuses languages. I was thinking, this is ironic, because you know, I'm, I'm reading here in Genesis 11 about this confusion of language so that people couldn't understand one another any longer. And I'm studying the second chapter of Acts where God does this miracle so that people could hear in their own uh, language and speakers were given the ability to supernaturally speak a language that others could understand. I'm thinking, what's the, what's the connection here between these two things? So 
In Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, this is like a low point in the history of humanity because sin is just spiraling out of control and the people come together on this godless project to build this tower for their own glory and to make a name for themselves. And things have gotten so bad that God is like, you know what, people, people have become like people who are hanging out together that just make one another worse. You ever seen this? You've seen people who hang out with one another and all they do is make one another worse, right? So God says, they're not helping one another by being together. <laughs> they're, making, they're feeding off of one another's sin. So I'm gonna separate them, gonna scatter them. How does God do that? He, he, he confuses their languages. They can't understand one another any longer. So in Genesis 11, what you see is people who are just pathetically lost. It's a low point. What happens at the very beginning of the next chapter? At the very beginning of Genesis 12, what happens? God says, I'm, I'm gonna do a new thing. And how's he gonna do that? So God extends a call to a man named Abram who became Abraham. And what does, he, what does he do here? Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and to your kindred and your father's house and to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says, right after this low point in the history of humanity, what does God do? God says, I'm gonna begin to bring healing to my broken world. How is God gonna do that? God says, I'm gonna begin to bring healing to the world by, by taking this, this one group of people and through this one group of people, I'm gonna bring blessing to every group of people. And how's he gonna do that? Well, even when, when Israel fails in its mission, God doesn't fail in his promise because what does God do? God brings the Messiah, the Savior, through Israel. And so now what's happening on the day of Pentecost, the Savior has come, he has paid the penalty for sin, he's made atonement for sin, he has conquered death, he has ascended he reigns as king, and now his spirit is being poured out to do what? To begin to bring people together through this good news of the gospel. And God's healing purpose and in, 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 in healing and making a new creation is carried out as the, as the gospel brings every tribe and tongue together. It's beautiful what God is doing here. Verses nine through 11, uh, it says that there were there present Parthians and, and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and 
Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You know, if you were to take a map and you were to see where all of these different people groups were from that were in Jerusalem that day, this is what you would see, north, south, east, west. Right? God does this miracle on the very day when people are going to hear the good news and they're going to go out in every direction spreading the good news. And out of all the different people that were sharing good news that day in Jerusalem, there was one in particular who sort of took a leading role, and that was Peter. Verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Peter, the one who had been the most disgraced because of his cowardice and denying Christ. Peter, the one who had been the most humiliated of all of them and who, who displayed this incredible cowardice and treachery and, and, and betrayal of Jesus. God is taking him and he's using him. He's restored him and he's using him in a great way here. What does that tell us about the grace of God? You know, you think about the things in your life that you were most ashamed of. You think about the areas of your life where you have, blown it the worst and the areas of your life where you've you've made just the biggest mess of things i want to tell you something as a follower of jesus all of that is under the blood of christ it's been dealt with it's forgiven and listen god god accepts you and loves you as his precious child based on what Jesus has done for you. And now he wants to take your redeemed life and turn you outward. He wants to make us into a people who instead of being narcissistically turned inward on ourselves, curved inward on ourselves, that he turns us out, and he turns us, he turns us out. Just as this crowd in Jerusalem is gonna be turned out to go to the ends of the earth, he turns us out. He turns us out, first of all, to the people all around us, in our families, and in our workplaces, and our schools, and our community, and yeah, beyond that to the ends of the earth, but it starts here. He, he turns us outward to others so that we can love them. And, and part of that love is sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we don't have to do life alone. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, that you have come to us, and that you are with us and in us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Help us to, to lean upon your spirit in all of life. Help us not to try to do life or ministry apart from the power of your spirit. 
We pray that your spirit would do a great work in us. We pray that you would cleanse us of, of things in our lives that don't need to be there. And we pray that the wind of God would blow through and, and renew and reconstruct and form us and make us into the people that you've called us to be so that we can be a people for others, for your glory. So we just continue to pray. If you're here today and you wonder about a relationship with Jesus, what's that all about? It's the Spirit of God speaking to your, your life today. Turn to Him. Repent. That means turn from trying to do life apart from Jesus. And trust Him. Trust that He died for your sins. That He was raised from the dead. And receive Him, welcome Him into your life today as your Savior and your King. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation, and we want to invite you to come. God's speaking to you about following Jesus, about becoming a part of this church family as we follow Him together. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, and welcome you and come alongside. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.